Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there. Welcome back. This is Walk Through the Bible, week number six. Today, we're going to be talking about our reading from this week, which covered pages 158 through 190 of the Daily Bible, or the dates February 5 through 11 in the Daily Bible. We're going to talk today about the necessity of faith. I don't know how you react when you don't have faith or you're lacking faith, but the Israelites have several examples in today's reading of what a lack of faith looks like. And it may look like not turning to God for help because we don't believe that God can help. Or it might mean complaining and murmuring because we don't have faith that God's going to improve our lot and do what he's promised. And thirdly, it could mean rebelling against the leadership that God has given us. It's all directed at God himself, and it's a reflection of our lack of faith in whom God chooses and how God leads. So let's start our stories this week. So first, let's review. God brought his people out of Egypt. They, he has demonstrated his power by caring for them, feeding them, providing them with water, showing him that he is the God that's going to take care of all their needs. He called Moses up on the, temp, on the, the mountaintop, and he proposed marriage to his people, and they agreed. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments, which is a sealing of the covenant, and he tells them how to build a tabernacle so that he can come down and dwell with his people. So now um, we have skipped a little bit of uh, scriptures. If you're reading through your Bible and you don't have a chronological Bible like the Daily Bible, you're going to notice that we've skipped some places in Exodus and Leviticus. And that's because we're saving up all the sections of scripture about the law and all of the 613 commandments that God gave his people. We're going to deal with all those later in one section. So today we're continuing on with our story. It's now been one year already since the Exodus. Can you believe it? And it's time for them to celebrate their first Passover, which they do. In a future episode, we're going to talk about what that looks like, the episode, the celebration of the Passover and the meaning of it. But let's continue with our story. So now it's time God instructs Moses to begin numbering the Israelites. And a a census of the people was usually, and in this context, it seems like it was to prepare them for war. And how many men of fighting age were there? And so this numbering of the tribes was in order to come up with that number. Now, it says that there were roughly 600,000 men. And if you add to that wives and children, we're talking about easily 2 million people. 
But you'll find that there are some scholars and archaeologists that say there's been a mistranslation of the word for thousand and that that word should be translated as a military unit. So there were units, not people. And therefore, if you add up the units, it comes to a lot less people. Let's face it, two million people to feed and water and lead through the wilderness, that's an overwhelming size crowd. But that's how our translators have translated that word for thousands to come up with 600,000 men. Um, on the low side, another translation would say there were only between 7,000 and maybe up to 20,000 people. An easier crowd, but when we read our scriptures, it says 600,000 in English. And later on, we find that there were plagues and there were incidences where 20,000 died. So uh, 20,000 dying is not a huge number if you're looking at tw 2 million people, but it would wipe them out if we were looking at a smaller crowd. So I'm just telling you the issues. We know that what, whatever the number was, it was a lot of people. And here, Moses has taken an accounting of them and has organized them. And um, he's told them exactly how to camp around the tabernacle and where the Levites are to camp. By the way, the Levites were not counted with the fighting men. They were counted separately because their job is to tend to the holy things and to the tabernacle. They were not to fight. So um, now the cloud begins to lift. It begins to move. And the Israelites are now on the move. Their journey has begun. Um, but what happens right away is there are murmurings and complaints in the camp. They miss the fish and the leeks and the onions and the garlic of Egypt. And it is known that in the area of Egypt called Goshen, uh, where they would have lived, it was rich with fish and leeks and onions and garlic and these things that are mentioned in the scripture, it was a very lush area for these items. Now, it says in this uh, section of scripture that the murmuring seemed to come from what in the NIV uses the word rabble. Um, other translations use it as like a mixed crowd. And so what it seems to be indicating is that the Israelites that mixed with the Egyptians and perhaps some of the Egyptians that came out of Egypt with them because other people came out with them, that these were the ones that complained the loudest. And this is an important lesson for us later on to understand the influence of outsiders that uh, would have on the people of Israel and how dangerous it was. So here Moses goes to God, and I find this to be another kind of comical section of our reading. Moses goes to God and he pleads and he says, what have I done to deserve the burden of this people? Did I give them birth 
They're not my people. Why do I have to put up with them? And God, of course, tells him, I get 70 elders. I'm going to anoint them for leadership as well, and I'm going to provide help for you. Moses needed help. He was to his wit's end with the murmuring and the complaining. So uh, Moses assembles 70 elders from all of the tribes. And it's a very interesting passage here where God takes the Holy Spirit that's upon Moses and anoints these 70 elders. And it says that they are prophesying, which seems to indicate some kind of a spiritual experience that might relate to actually the day of Pentecost, some, what, 1,500 years later when the Holy Spirit fell on those gathered in Jerusalem. And it says there were tongues of fire on their heads and they spoke in other tongues. Um, another kind of ecstatic experience brought on by the Holy Spirit. And we read about it here in the wilderness. Now, uh, God then provides so much quail for the Israelites that they actually get sick from it. And there's a plague because of the murmuring and the complaints because of their lack of faith. Then we have another interesting story where Miriam begins to lead somewhat of a rebellion against Moses and she gets Aaron to back her. And it's all over his new wife who is from Cush. She's a Cushite. And I want to bring this out because uh, when, when we look at this scripture from 21st century life, we've seen the slavery of the black Africans and the, the Cushites were a darker-skinned group of people from the southern Nile region, so below Egypt, and much darker in skin tone. And so we might read this and think that actually they're looking down upon the Cushite woman because of her skin tone, but that's not at all what the scripture says, nor implies. And I just recently read something that was so interesting here, I wanted to bring it out. If you notice here, what Miriam says of Moses is, who does he think he is anyway? And um, the very following scripture right after this story is, um, this is what it says. It says that now Moses was a very humble man. So what does that have to do with it? it but Mo Miriam was like complaining that he thought too highly of himself by marrying this woman. And so what I read recently is that the Cushites were in no way considered inferior or looked down upon in any way. In fact, they were known for being very fierce soldiers and in a way a, uh, a higher fighting class. And so actually, Miriam might have been saying that Moses has married too high for himself. Who does he think he is marrying a woman of that higher society or higher class? And then the scripture go on to say that but Moses was a very humble man. So the scripture is taking up for, for Moses in this situation. So it's interesting. That's why it's so important that we study the context for the scriptures and we do everything that we can to take off our cultural lenses and our assumptions 
and dig deeper into, well, what was going on in the society around them when this happened? And to see it through the eyes of the locals. And then we, we understand it better. Then we have a very, very key story that I really want to take a minute to emphasize here. And this is the story where um, it's time for the Israelites to enter the land. And so they send in 12 spies, one from each tribe, to scout out the land. Well, we all know this story. We've heard it in um, Sunday school so many times. And the spies go in and they come back and they're carrying these huge grapes and they're, and they're showing the the fruit of the vine, the fruit of the land, and they're saying, surely it is a land flowing with milk and honey. But wait a minute, there are strong and big people there and walled cities, and there's no way we can take this land. But there were two spies that said, surely we can do it because God is with us. And all the people listened to the 10 spies and the negative report, and this robs them from the opportunity to actually go in and take the land. Now, you know, the, the report back was um, a very real report. It's interesting because the spies were instructed to go in and spy out the Negev and the hill country. But when you read the description, the spies went way beyond the hill country. They went on up to the Jezreel Valley, over to the coast. They came down. So they saw peoples and more areas than what God wanted them to see. So it was more intimidating to them. Yeah, the giants were still in the hill country. It was still going to take faith and courage to go in and take just the hill country. But by taking too broad of a look, I think it really wore down um, their faith. And so they come back with this negative report. And the giants were very real. You know, there's an Egyptian papyrus that is called the um, Anastasi the First Papyrus. And it refers to these fierce warriors living in Canaan at, that were seven to nine feet tall. So that is a, a confirmation that what the Bible's calling giants really were. They were gigantic people. Uh, nine feet tall, that is very big, and that would be very overwhelming. And so the spies said, you know, we're as grasshoppers before them. In other words, they can stomp us out. They can devour us. Uh, they can wipe us out. So, of course, the Lord gets angry because of their lack of faith, because they're not going to go in and take the land based on their ability it's all God has promised them that he's going to go before them and that he's going to drive out the inhabitants before them. And so it's all of lack of faith on their part of what God has promised them. And so the Lord gets very offended over this. And, um, and he says, okay, you know, one year for every day that you were away. And he says to them that they have rejected the land. Uh, they've rejected um, his promise, which is, he takes it very personally here. 
And uh, so the people say, okay, okay, we'll go, we'll go. And they go in and they try to take the land in their own strength. The Lord is not with them. And of course, they're defeated. This is a very important lesson for you and me. Because the land, we can see it as like a, a shadow, a, a type and shadow of our life in Christ, of our salvation. We enter the land through Christ. But then there are promises for us in the land. But we have to, in a way, go in faith that God is with us and tackle these things and see his victory in these areas in our life and in our world. And it may be uh, daunting things. I mean, people that have serious addictions um, may be afraid to enter the land that they don't believe God can help them, or it could be someone with a, a physical need for healing or for health, or it could be a, a broken marriage or a broken relationship or all these things that it's easy for us to say, no, it's just impossible and, and sit back in the wilderness and complain about it, feel sorry for ourselves when the whole time God is saying, if you would just have faith in me, I'm going to help you. But you've got to get up and go. You've got to go after it. You've got to walk into the land and you're going to see me deliver you. And I will say that, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I went through a situation. I was kind of battling with this and over the issue of, well, when do we just see God's promises? And when do we have to pray them into being and kind of grappling with this? And do you know it was this story that really spoke to my heart about the spies and their report that we have to go in and take the land in faith. We have to demonstrate our faith by tackling these things. And we're going to see God clear it out for us. We're going to see God deliver us. But we, if we don't have faith, we're never going to step forward. We have to have faith, and we will see the goodness of the land. We will see all the good things that God has promised us. So now, but in our story, the Israelites, because of their lack of faith, they couldn't enter the land. And so they were told for 40 years now, you're going to wander until... Every last one of you that has had this negative report dies out because you're not going to enter the land. Your children will, um, but not you. And so um, we see then this, this murmuring now becomes a rebellion against the leadership and, and against Aaron's priesthood. Um, and so there's this story of where the the rebels that are standing up against Aaron as the priest and the priests, and they're trying to do it um, themselves. And of course, they are punished. And um, the there's an interesting story here where God tells Moses to take a staff from each of the 12 tribes and put it in the tabernacle. And I am going to demonstrate who I've chosen. And so the next day they find that it was this, the rod of Aaron that had not just sprouted, it had actually blossomed. And that was God's way of saying, this is who I have chosen. 
and he is going to be the priest, and you are not going to rebel against this. And it's also his way of demonstrating his power over creation and over natural things. And um, it's a it's a very interesting story. Now, um, the Levites are told that they are, uh, the Levites and the descendants of Aaron are told, you are to be the priest, you are to care after the tabernacle, Aaron, you are to be the priestly family, and, but you're not going to inherit any land uh, in the land. So that's interesting, um, Said, but the ties of the people are going to support you. And then our next story is where uh, Moses and Aaron themselves then displease the Lord. And this is a warning for all of us. None of us should think that we are above displeasing the Lord, that we are above becoming rebellious ourselves. Um, and it's an interesting story here because in early on in the wilderness wanderings at a site called uh, Rephidim, the, the Lord told Moses to strike the rock and he would provide water. And Moses did it. And uh, the Lord provide, miraculously provided water for the people. But now here we have they're in a different area of the country. And this time, God tells Moses not to strike the rock, but speak to the rock, and God will provide water. What does Moses do? He goes and he takes his rod, and you could say out of anger, he strikes the rock and he says, what is it we have to do? We have to provide water for you again. So Moses is acting like he's the one providing the water. And this is very displeasing to the Lord. In this area of the Sinai desert or of the wilderness, you could say, the formation is very, very different than it was in that first story. In this area, the rock is very, very porous and water seeps in and builds up inside and it forms a crusty uh, covering over it. And if you know where to look and there's indications, you can see where there may be water leaking out. All you have to do is strike it and it breaks open and the water will come out. And so Moses may have not performed any kind of miracle whatsoever. He might have read the geography and struck where he knew it was crusty and water would come out and he takes the credit for it. And God is very displeased if Moses had only spoken and water came out, God would have gotten the glory. So we need to be very, very careful that we always give God the glory and we not try to take credit on our own. And so the Lord says here that Moses, neither Aaron nor Moses, will enter the Holy Land. Too bad. But the Lord is showing here a very important lesson that there are consequences for sin. If we think that we can just go off in our own strength, that we can be arrogant, that we can be angry, that we can walk in sinful ways 
and not suffer the consequences of it, then we are deceived. And this is the lesson that God is showing his people, that there are consequences to your disobedience. And I'm trying to prepare you for a holy land in which you will need to be a holy people. And so I cannot tolerate this kind of rebellion. Okay, then that leads us to another very interesting and very curious story. We have two stories left today. This one is this very odd story of how that there were serpents coming after the Israelites. And so God tells Moses to um, get a bronze-covered serpent and put it up on a pole, and that if the people will look upon it, they'll be healed from these serpent bites. Now, this is so curious because it's like, what? Is this like magic or something? You know, in back in Egypt, the Egyptians, we find it on some of the pharaohs and the leaders that they would wear a, an ornament uh, maybe of a serpent because of the belief that if you look at an image of something, it will protect you from that very thing. So um, there could be a hint of this from Egypt that if you just look at the serpent, this will protect you. But it's very interesting that some 1,500 years later, Jesus actually refers to this and says that he will be lifted up as was the serpent in the desert. So I think we need to take a deeper look at this, that this has nothing to do with anything magical uh, from Egypt. The rabbis explain it, that the lifting of the serpent, it required the person had faith, number one. Uh, if they don't have faith that this is going to work, then they're not going to do it, right? So number one, the expression of their faith would be to obey this command and look at the serpent. And so through their faith and their obedience, they then um, experienced a miraculous healing. Um, so Jesus then said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus certainly saw this as an expression of faith and obedience, and that as we look to him, Jesus, who was lifted up on the cross, that our faith will save us. Last story of today is then as the Israelites are moving on, um, they go around um, Edom, and they're going around uh, Ammon, but they come to the people, the Amorites, who come out to fight them. So they defeat the Amorites. So now the king of Moab is very worried. He sees all these people headed his way, and he wants to defeat them. So he hires a prophet to come and speak a word of curse over the Israelites, and that will then allow this king to go after them and to defeat them. Now, you might say there's superstition here. Whatever it was, 
that's what he believed. And so he wanted this prophet to come. And he even hired a prophet from outside the area to come in and pronounce this bless, this um, curse upon the Israelite people. And so we have this really interesting story. It's kind of a fun story because it's got a talking donkey in it. And um, But in the end, Balaam is unable to curse the people of Israel. And instead, he blesses them and he prophesies over them to the point to where he knows that the God of the Israelites um, is using him to speak these pronouncements. And so he stops even trying to do anything else. And he just speaks blessing over them. There's four very powerful blessings and prophecies that he speaks over the people. Uh, first, he prophesies their prosperity. He prophesies their coming monarchy and kingship. He prophesies that they're going to defeat all of the peoples around them. And then he has this amazing prophecy of a star that will come out of Jacob. And uh, rabbinic tradition has interpreted that as a messianic uh, prophecy. And it could be that the wise men that followed the star, the Messiah star, that it goes back to this scripture, that out of Jacob would come a star. And it's interesting, at the very end of the book of Revelation, uh, some of the very last words of Jesus in that book are, I am the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So here God uses an ungodly prophet, Balaam, to speak a prophecy of a coming Messiah. And Jesus says, I am he, the bright and morning star. Balaam also refers to the Israelites as a people who dwell alone. And uh, the actual translation of that is almost like a, that they, they themselves are dwelling alone, that it's something that they're doing. They're different. They're different from the peoples around them. They're standing apart from the peoples around them. And it's all because of their God. And throughout history, we've seen this, that the Jewish people have been a people apart. God's laws made them different. We're going to talk about that when we get to the section on the laws. By being obedient to what God told them to do, they stood out. They were different. And sometimes that made them an object of scorn and of hatred. But they stuck to it, and they've carried this burden of being God's people throughout history, knowing that it often made people hate them because we don't like what's different. But here Balaam says, he puts the, the nail on the head and he says that they are a people alone. They are a nation apart from all the other, all the other nations. So what do we see here in these stories this week? First, we see God is greater than anything you might want to say would limit him. We see in this story, God used a bronze serpent as a foreshadow of what he was going to do with Jesus on the cross. We see God used a pagan prophet, Balaam, to speak words of truth over his people that are so profound. I mean, 
our God is so great, and we need to make sure that we're not like the ten doubting spies that don't have faith in this great God, or that we're like the ones that murmur against his leadership in Moses and in Aaron, or that we're like those that murmur because we don't think God's provision for us is good enough. We see that he's promised us greater things and we, we are displeased with what God's doing in our lives today. No, 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 our God is so great. We need to have faith in him, follow his instructions, and follow the leaders that he's put in our life, knowing that we're gonna enter the land and he has good things for us there because he is such a great God. I am so glad that you chose to join me this week. I hope you enjoy next week's readings. We'll be back here again next week. And until then, God bless.